Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show with Chris Webster on KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada, and online at knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. Welcome to the show. Hello, listeners and fans of archaeology. I'm your host for the next hour, Chris Webster. I'm a contract archaeologist in a field we call cultural resources management. You guys are probably getting tired of hearing me say that. Call in and ask me about it, and we'll talk about it. Uh, I also run the Archaeology Podcast Network. We have lots of great shows about archaeology, and you can find them all at www.archpodnet.com. We've actually got a great new show coming in. It's, it's an existing show called The Dirt Podcast, run by two fantastic women, archaeologists, and they'll be coming into the APN, so you can find all their stuff at archpodnet.com or wherever you find podcasts. It's just me today, and I'll be talking about some recent field work that I did actually this week, if you're listening to this uh, in an unrecorded version and live on the radio. Uh, and I'll also talk about some items in the news. While you're listening, remember that, that this is first and foremost a call-in show. And I know I haven't had too many calls into the show, which is understandable. Uh, it's a small listening area, but I know you guys are out there and I know some people are listening. So please call in with your questions to 775-515-4141. That's 775-515-4141. You can also tweet your questions to at ArcheoWebby or at ArcPodNet, A-R-C-H-P-O-D-N-E-T, and ArcheoWebby is A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y. You can actually email me, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com as well. I'll try to watch all that stuff while I'm doing the show. So, again, call in with your questions about archaeology, history, archaeology you saw on TV, questions about finding things on your property, anything. I don't have all the answers, but I will do my best to steer you in the right direction. So again, that's 775-515-4141. All right, everybody. As I said, it is just me today, which is, you know, that's okay. It's uh, my, my longtime, I guess longtime guest co-host, Brian, uh, had some other things to do at this time period that he couldn't reschedule. So again, just me. So please call in, keep me company. Let's talk about archaeology. <laughs> it's what I do. It's what I like to do. I, I always talk about archaeology everywhere I go uh, because quite honestly, it's very interesting and uh, people enjoy talking about it. So Call in 775-515-4141, and we will talk about whatever the heck you want to talk about. But the first thing I want to talk about today is about some fieldwork that I did this week. Because as I mentioned, and I mention every show, I am what's called a cultural resources management archaeologist. And what does that mean? Well, it means that I don't go out Indiana Jones style and do whatever I want to do. <laughs> the reality is I do what I'm paid to do. Uh, what's federally regulated to do, or state regulated in some cases. In this case, I was working for a mine, which is not uncommon here in Nevada. Uh, it was out in the northeastern portion of the state, and uh, it's kind of an annual project that I do for them because some of you may or may not know, a lot of mines and ranches and you know people that need grazing properties and things like that, they don't actually own the land that this is happening on. What they do is they lease it from the federal government, usually BLM or U.S. Forest Service. And when they do that, they are stewards of the land now, and they have certain responsibilities that they need to maintain about that land. One of those responsibilities is archaeological sites and proper maintenance and care of archaeological sites. So typically, we don't 
uh, as archaeologists or the BLM archaeologists or U.S. Forest Service archaeologists, we don't typically tell people where archaeological sites are. And that's because they're sensitive. You know, we, they're, they're not necessarily sensitive from a value standpoint monetarily. They're sensitive from a cultural standpoint, which means a lot of times Native American sites, uh, they don't want people actually disturbing what they have. They don't want people going out there and, and wrecking something sacred or something like that. So the, for that reason, you typically don't know. However, if you're leasing the land, you have to know where they're at so you can avoid you have to know uh, where these sites are. So if you're putting, if you're a mine and you're putting in a new haul road, or you're putting in a new uh, surface mine, or you're putting in you know new access roads or something like that, you have to be able to know where those sites are so you can avoid those sites. And we only avoid sites that are what we call either unevaluated, which means nobody's evaluated the site, which means somebody has to come out and do that, or they're potentially eligible or eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. So I've talked about that before. There are actually four criteria that will get a site eligible, and only one of those has to apply. And keep in mind, the site doesn't actually have to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It just has to be eligible for it. And the weird thing about archaeology is obviously, uh, or I guess I should say the weird thing about regulation, is obviously things change through time. And it doesn't take a lot of time for things to change, which I always am struck by the human impact on the landscape because, uh, for example, one of the sites I had to go look at uh, was actually recorded last year. Uh, I think it was recorded again last year in 2018. But right after it was recorded, a fire ripped through the area. So the BLM said, hey, go back out and see if there's anything left of these two sites. Well, one site was prehistoric. It had um, a whole bunch of, again, what we call projectile points, but what you may know as is arrowheads, had a whole bunch of those on there. And it had uh, other tools that you would use in, you know, stone tools, had the, the what we call debitage or the flakes from making stone tools. And that was pretty much it. Uh, there was no any pottery or groundstone or anything like that. So that's what it had on there. And I knew before I even went there that the site would be okay because if it's prehistoric, Chances are hundreds of fires have gone across that site, <laughs> not just the one. You know, It's more likely that we're going to do damage, as I said, looking at the human impact on the world. Uh, it's more likely we're going to do damage in the last 50 years, way more damage in the last 50 years than have been done in the last 5,000 years. Okay, Now, weather over the last 5,000 years has had significant impacts. One of those is wind. Uh, a lot of times wind doesn't affect uh, stone tools and stone flakes unless it's a significant wind and maybe it flips them up and moves them time and time and time. And you might think moving a tiny little flake of stone, uh, like flipping it over during one windstorm, is not that big a deal. But if you go through 800 windstorms and it moves a centimeter each time or it moves a, a third of an inch each time, well, that's a significant movement in that site. And, and that's one... That's one thing. I believe the word taphonomy also applies to this. Uh, taphonomy usually refers to, in my experience, what happens to a bone between when the uh, when the thing dies that had the bones and to when it becomes a fossil. What, what happens to that bone during that process? Um, but I think that can also be applied to archaeological sites. If you disagree with me, uh, please call in 775-515-4141. Anyway, talking about what affects archaeological sites. So again, over the course of thousands of years, you have wind, you have rain, of course. If it's on a flat plain, might be a little bit less affected, but nothing is truly flat, which means water is always going from one location to another, uh, unless it is really kind of a basin or a shallow spot where water will pool, and then it's not really moving around much. But if water's not really pooling right there, then it's moving. I mean, that's just water. That's how it works. So water's going from one location to another location, and when it's doing that, water has friction. It's not frictionless, and water also undermines soil that might be near or under artifacts, and that will move them. Again, we might be talking about fractions of an inch at a time, every single rainstorm or something like that. But when you factor in thousands of rainstorms, you're talking about a lot of movement, okay? A lot of movement. So when we look at all those things, those do have an impact on the site. You also have a freeze-thaw cycle, which many of us are very aware of out here in Nevada. So the freeze-thaw cycle, if you're not aware of that, is basically, you know, we go through really big temperature swings here in uh, the Great Basin and the high desert. So it's not uncommon for a typical day in the wintertime or even spring and fall to have a 50-degree temperature swing, which means you might have lows in the 30s and highs in the 70s or 80s, right? So 
when that happens, when the ground freezes, it kind of pulls apart because it freezes into clumps and it pulls apart a little bit. On the wet of the ground, the more drastic that is. And as it freezes, it pulls apart and might cause little crevices and things for artifacts to fall into. And then when it thaws again, it comes back together. Well, now it's reburied some artifacts. And then you've got water and erosion and uh, from wind from, uh, coming in and revealing the artifacts again. Uh, one other thing you have is you also have game. Uh, now, there's not a lot of game as compared to livestock today, but game does have an effect. And again, you might only see a herd of antelope in one area you know, once every few weeks, but when you compound that over thousands and thousands of years, again, that has a dramatic impact on how a site is formed and what happens with that site. So what's the human impact lately? <laughs> and by lately, in the Great Basin, I mean in the last... I mean, realistically, 150 years, but honestly, for most of these sites, it's probably the last 100 years, maybe even only the last 50 or 60 years, because some of these areas are so remote that while explorers may have traveled over them, uh, people haven't lived there for a really long time. Modern uh, settlers haven't lived there for a long time. Of course, Native Americans have been there for at least 12,000 years, probably a lot more, depending on who you believe on the research. So when you have all these things compounding, uh, it means you have a lot of things being done to a site. So, uh, like I said, grazing is a human impact. Even though it's cattle, we put the cattle there, and we told the cattle, hey, you guys all stay right here, and now they're affecting the ground in a greater way than they would if they were roaming around randomly. Now, they do roam around randomly over a large, large area, but they tend to stick together, and they tend to walk in lines and uh, things like that, You know, typical game trail type stuff. So when they do that, they damage the ground. And they damage it in a way that is essentially not natural. And it's not natural because, well, they're not indigenous to that area. And they didn't just evolve there with the rest of the landscape. They were put there by humans. Okay. So some of the other things humans do, of course, we make roads. Uh, we uh, remove vegetation. We put other vegetation in. We change species. We, we bring stuff in. We introduce stuff. We take stuff away. We do all these different things. So when I say I had... I had a couple sites to go out to check on for this, quote, fire survey, I was calling it. Uh, one of them was prehistoric. And again, when I went out there, you could tell a massive vegetation change over just the course of less than a year. And what I mean by that is all the sagebrush was burned. You could see the, the husks of the sagebrush, and you could kind of see the area around the sagebrush. So it wasn't very dense. It was maybe one every uh, couple meters or, you know, six to nine feet. So sagebrush was all burned. And then this other kind of desert grass had come in, and this... Um, this leafy plant, I think it's called a mule ear plant or something like that, had come in as well. But they were not very dense. And I was able to see uh, most of the artifacts that were listed on the old site record on the ground. And I saw enough to tell me that, yeah, this is all still here as it was a year ago. I don't know if it's the same place it was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but it's at least in the same place and relatively undamaged from what it was a year ago. So now fast forward about 30 minutes to... <laughs> when I went to the next site, which was listed as a multi-component site. And what that means is it means it had prehistoric and historic elements on it. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that Native Americans and historic settlers were commingling together. It just means it was a place where Native Americans at one time were there, and then uh, typically European settlers were also there at some point, right? And more than likely, you find those sites around resources, resources like water. And sure enough, there was a, a gulch or a spring with a fairly significant amount of water for July coming down out of the mountains or wherever the source was uh, right by that site. So you had a combination of prehistoric artifacts, which I did find a number of prehistoric artifacts. And then we had wooden artifacts, which consisted of a couple posts. I don't know what the posts were for, but a couple posts that were in the ground, some wooden posts that were supposed to be lying on the ground, uh, what looked like part of a fence, I guess, from one of the old pictures. Uh, some glass, amethyst glass, and if you know anything about amethyst glass, um, that typically dates from pre-1917 to 19 or 20. Um, it's basically pre-World War One. And the reason for that is uh, to make glass clear or colorless, as archaeologists call it, uh, you add um, manganese to it, uh, pre-World War One, and then that would make the glass turn colorless. We don't say clear, we say colorless. Uh, but of course, our primary source of manganese was Germany. And <laughs> when we went to war with Germany, they weren't just giving us manganese anymore. So, and we didn't have a local source of it. So we had to turn to something else. And, uh, 
and that produces a whole different kind of glass. But the point is, when this colorless glass from pre-World War One sits out in the sun, the more it has in it, the longer it sits out in the sun, the more pinkish purplish it gets. Uh, it can get to a really dark purple. It's really cool looking glass, but we call it amethyst glass and it's very dateable. So we know that the historic component of this site was at least predating World War One, or at least parts of the components were. So what was left when I got there? Again, prehistorics were there, but all the historic stuff was gone. I didn't find the glass. That doesn't mean the glass wasn't there, but it could mean uh, that the glass was melted depending on the heat of the fire. Uh, it could have been melted and then uh, freeze-thaw over the winter, um, been buried. I don't know how many pieces it was. I didn't really mention that in the site record. If it was tiny fragments or shards of glass, then it was probably you know, buried or maybe it was too much vegetation because they had a lot of rain and I couldn't see it. But either way, I knew where the posts were supposed to be, and those weren't there. There were just ash and, and fragments, and so none of that was there. So the longevity of historic sites typically is not as good as prehistoric sites, which tells me that... You know, if we abandon this world and in 500 or 1,000 years, there's not going to be a whole lot left of that, you know, pre-this era historical stuff. Now, a lot of our big buildings and roads and things like that, we'll still be able to see those things. But some of these older sites that are just tin cans and glass and fragments of wood and things like that from the early 20th century and the late 19th century, they're just not going to exist anymore. Because fire's typically going to hit just about everywhere on the planet at least once. <laughs> so I, I don't know how often, but... At least once a fire is going to rage through somewhere, you know, whether it's started by lightning or whatever, fire just goes across the landscape. It's just a natural part of the world. And uh, we deal with that. And, and, you know, it is what it is. So those are some of the things uh, that I was looking for. Another thing I was doing was looking at uh, I was looking at some sites that were both on Forest Service land and BLM land that are really just sitting on the property and uh, they're significant enough sites that the property property managers have to avoid them. So when they avoid them though, uh, the Forest Service and the BLM, they, they want some assurance that nothing is being done because I think hunters and other the public can also come in and access certain areas of these places. So in order to ensure and just have a third party kind of overlooking everything, the Forest Service and the BLM require the property manager to come in and hire somebody like a consultant, like myself, to go in as an objective third party and say, hey, what's going on here? So basically, I have points that I go around that I take photos from in the same direction from the same GPS location every single year, and I do what's called a condition assessment. Now, a few of those sites I've been looking at for the last seven or eight years in a row, and I have a long history of photographs that shows how it's changed or not changed through time. One of the biggest changes I've noticed in the last couple of years is grazing. I mean, there's been cattle physically on most of those sites this year and last year, whereas previous years there weren't any cattle because they, you know, in order to preserve the land at least a little bit, they don't let cattle graze in the same place every single year, year after year. They rotate it around to different areas. And right now they just happen to be rotated into this area, and I can really tell the, the damage that's being done by their hooves because, I don't know if you knew this, cows aren't light. You know, they're pretty big animals, and when it rains or the ground is soft, I mean, I saw hoof marks that were easily a foot deep and, and all clustered around each other. You know, it looked like Swiss cheese or worse than Swiss cheese. It looked like a sponge, to be honest. The ground did sometimes, and it was just amazing the amount of, uh, I guess, distribution that the cows were doing of the surface features, whether those were artifacts or grass and, and other things. And eventually those hoof prints will get filled in or, you know, stuff will just fall in and it will level itself back out because nature loves chaos and chaos is more of a leveling out versus these well-defined holes from cow hoof prints. So uh, it's called entropy. Uh, anyway, so nature loves chaos, so they'll eventually smooth out. But somebody many, many years from now might be doing a dig right there or looking at something subsurface and going, why is this thing a foot below or two feet below at that point in time, the natural surface, whereas nothing else is? And they might not be able to figure it out. They might think it's a post holes or something like that or some weird thing. But really, it's just cow hoof prints <laughs> or cow hooves that went halfway up the leg uh, because it was wet when they happened to be standing there. So it, we have to really be careful when we're interpreting stuff because you never really know how it was created. Uh, you can guess. Uh, you can make pretty well-educated guesses. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's all a little bit subjective, and you really have to look at your sources. So, all right. Well, let's take a break. 
Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code T-A-S. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Let's move on. So again, out at this uh, site, I was doing those uh, photo documentation. Um, and then there's another thing I had to do, which was record an unevaluated site. And again, uh, people used to leave these sites unevaluated all the time, and we still do, uh, if, if for some reason the scope of the project didn't allow us to properly evaluate whether or not the site was eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. And you know, maybe we didn't have a permit to dig or something like that, because most of the time we just do surface inspection of these sites. So when we look at these on the surface, we, we're looking for either actual surface artifacts or features or expressions of stuff that's underground. Like, for example, if you have a burial, there could be a depression. If it's, an, if it's a, not a very old burial, like within the last 100, 150 years, hasn't had a chance for the ground to kind of equalize, uh, there could be a little depression because when you bury a human body, whether it's in a, uh, in a casket or not, even if it's just, just the body, well, the body degrades and collapses in on itself. And even if the skeleton is intact because of the soil, usually the skin and all the other soft material will degrade and decompose, and then the soil will fill in, and you'll be left with a slight um, depression in the ground. And that's how you can tell you have a burial, unless, obviously, the other way is there's some sort of marker or something like that. And I don't mean like a gravestone, but like sometimes just a stone that's sitting unnaturally you know, at one end. We've been doing that for a long time. So, or it could be rocks covering the entire thing. Sometimes people did that just to keep animals out when it wasn't buried very deep, the body, or something like that. So we look for expressions like that to give us hints as to what's under the ground. So I'm, I'm out there looking at this site. It's the last thing I had to do in this two-day little project. And I'll tell you what, it was tough. <laughs> With uh, you got to look at the time of year that you're doing these kinds of things. And I couldn't faithfully see what I was supposed to see. The site's been recorded three times in the past. The first time was in the 70s and then twice in the 90s. And uh, you might ask why it was recorded so many times. The first time it was ever found was in the late 70s. And then uh, there was a mine property then because that's why it was uh, being recorded. And uh, throughout time, whatever whoever was managing that property had to come through and say, well, we're getting near this. Uh, we're going to put a haul road in over here, so we need to have somebody to go take a look at these again. And on BLM land, and I think it's the same on a lot of Forest Service land too, but on BLM land, if a site was fully recorded over 10 years ago, uh, then you have to fully record it again. That's kind of a general rule on BLM land. So um, so we always do those uh, at the same time. So since it was never evaluated and it was recorded you know, almost 25 years ago, or geez, almost 30 years ago, um, then I had to come in and re-record it. Well, I spent probably two hours surveying across this landscape, following the maps that were drawn back in the 90s, like literally hand-drawn back in the 90s, and uh, and just looking at those. And I couldn't see hardly anything on the ground. There was too much vegetation. It was too early in the year. Uh, we were only able to get out there in the last month or so because there was still snow on the ground because uh, it's a higher elevation. So I had to basically call the Forest Service and call my client and say, listen, I don't, I don't think I can do this with a, a good faith effort. I, I don't think I can make it because I can't see the ground uh, enough to actually say what's here. If I was just trying to evaluate and say, is the site still here? I probably could have done that because I did find material. But can I properly record the site and record everything that's there? No, I just couldn't do that. So basically it means I got to go back in about October when everything's dead. But you got to play that fine mix of um, – uh, that balance of going between uh, is a, is the vegetation dead and is there snow on the ground? <laughs> because once there's snow on the ground, 
probably not going anywhere. And we typically don't record stuff when there's snow on the ground unless we're digging below the snow. But we're not. We're just looking at the surface. So that makes it really, really difficult. So anyway, just one final note on this whole thing. Uh, a couple of those sites were in, man, such a remote, beautiful area. It's, uh, I mean, there's so many areas we, we think, you see all those things on Facebook and you know, in different places that say, oh, if you're a true Nevadan, you know these places. But I'll tell you what, there is so much land in this state that nobody's been to in a really long time, uh, or, or at least not very many people go to very often. And I mean, I, I was in some places that were just, if, if there wasn't a, pay, uh, a gravel uh, bladed road there, I mean, you, you could have told me that you dropped me down in the Jurassic Park era, <laughs> like like in Jurassic Park, the movie, where that was, where it looked so primitive. It wouldn't have surprised me to see big dinosaurs coming over the landscape because that's what it looked like. It was just so raw. There were no planes flying overhead. There were no power lines. There were no other houses. Nobody lived out there. It was just phenomenal, um, the, the landscape. So um, it was just uh, – it was pretty awesome. So – that leads me uh, into the first article I want to talk about, and it's about space archaeology, and uh, it's from space.com, and it's called Space, space Archaeology is a Thing, and it involves lasers and spy satellites. <laughs> so one of the first interviews I ever did was with uh, a self-described space archaeologist, and uh, she's down in Australia, and uh, you can find that on the Archaeology Podcast Network if you just type in space archaeology under the uh, search terms. But... It's, it's an interesting term to me uh, because what this article is actually referring to is um, Dr. Sarah Parkak, who's with the University of Alabama at Birmingham, is an archaeologist and professor of anthropology. And she actually gave a TED Talk a while back about her work. And she won, I don't know the details around this, but she won the TEDx prize for uh, her work. And she took that million-dollar prize and created something called Global Explorer, if you want to check that out. It's global and then X-P-L-O-R-E-R. And it's basically a citizen science project where it runs you through a series of tests to see, to show what you should be looking for. And they're using close-in satellite images so you don't know where they're at because uh, they're archaeological sites to determine uh, whether or not there was looting. And it's not just it, – she started with like the Middle East and areas that are really in high-conflict areas. But it's not just that anymore. And basically, it's crowdsourced information. So if you recognize the signs of looting from the tutorial that they give you, you say, bam, that one has looting, that one has looting, that one has looting. And then it goes back into the system. And when, when a certain number of people have all agreed that, hey, there's looting there or there's no looting there, then an archaeologist comes back and makes a final determination. And uh, presumably, in some cases, they will go out and make a field determination if they can uh, or look at other sources. But they try to crowdsource the initial analysis of this because there's so much land to look at. And they're using um, current and archived satellite photos to do it. And that's where it leads me back into this article. Because she's got a new book, Dr. Parkak does, um, called Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past. Um, and again, this is an interesting take on the, on the phrase space archaeology. Because she's talking about doing archaeology on Earth from space, right? Using basically imagery, satellite satellite imagery and one of the things she used was the declassified images from the 1960s corona spy satellite program apparently these images aren't aren't classified anymore they were classified back in the day but they're not classified anymore and you can just find this information download it and i don't know how she got it but maybe it's publicly available it probably is uh, if it's government um you might have to request it i'm not sure but either way She's using those images. Well, she didn't use those images. Back in the 90s, archaeologists used those images to reconstruct the positions of important sites in the Middle East that had since disappeared, either through conflict or urban expansion. Um, but she's doing the same thing. And in her book, she talks a lot about using things like LIDAR, that's where lasers come in, uh, and thermal imaging and things like that to find stuff that's not really available. I think the next big advancement is going to be putting machine learning and artificial intelligence on top of these images and teaching these programs to find things that we want to find. Uh, and they'll get, they'll get better with higher resolution imagery, which I know that the government is probably taking ultra high resolution imagery right now and we'll be able to see that in 40 years. <laughs> probably not anytime soon, but maybe way in the distant future uh, when they declassify it all. So. Anyway, she mentions in her book, she kind of goes through a history of 
um, I think what I'm going to call aerial archaeology is looking at stuff from the sky, whether it's from a ladder or from a satellite. Uh, it doesn't matter. Just looking at stuff from not the ground level. And uh, she said one of the first times that that was ever done was when some archaeologists looked at Stonehenge um, from a hot air balloon over 100 years ago, which is pretty cool. So one of the things that's been kind of a fixture of this aerial archaeology and imagery is kite aerial photography. Uh, CAP, C-A-P, kite aerial photography. There's a couple of Facebook groups, Facebook groups dedicated to that. There's whole crazy rigs you can hang from the lines on the kite that, uh, and, and special kites that you can use. Well, not special, but certain ones you can use that are a lot more stable, the ones that kind of look like parachutes. And, uh, you know, they're not flying all over the place. They just kind of sit up in the air in one spot. And then you have the camera hanging down, and you can usually move the camera if you have the right kind of rig, um, like just like angle the lens, and then move around the site physically to take pictures shooting straight down. Uh, one of the rigs I saw, you actually use an iPad um, that's hooked to a program on the camera, and you can see what the camera can see, and then you can just tap on the screen and take pictures. And we use that imagery for various things, from uh, analyzing the site, seeing what's there from that altitude and seeing if there's any patterns we can see in the ground that, that aren't visible from the surface, or at least from your, you know, five to six foot height. And, uh, and then we can also stitch all those together in a process called photogrammetry to produce 3D models of the area, which can help us find even more stuff and, and suss out more patterns in the landscape and, and find stuff that way. So, um, but again, I want to talk really about her term space archaeology because we're getting into an era where... Uh, there really is human-created things and human effects on uh, astronomical bodies, specifically the moon, but not just the moon. You know, we've landed on asteroids. We're all over Mars, and those are now, for all intents and purposes, archaeological sites. Even if humans weren't there, human-created things are there. So those are archaeological sites by definition. And uh, some people might want to call that xenoarchaeology or something like that, you know, like alien archaeology. But that's not really true because we put it there. <laughs> we may not have done it you know, by our own hands, but we did it remotely, and it's an impact that we had on another thing. It's just like nobody would argue if, I, uh, you know, if there was a remote island somewhere that humans had never touched. We could prove that, but I shot a missile at it and blew a big crater in it. Well, that's now an archaeological site, even though humans still haven't ever been there. Uh, humans modified and affected that site, and now it's an archaeological site. So... That is, that, that is one way that I think I see space archaeology. Um, I think we should have another term for doing archaeology on the planet from space, from aerial photography, uh, from aerial satellite photography, I should say, and other satellite programs. But that's just me. I, I think it's getting confusing. Um, and I, I just saw an article earlier today. I don't remember what it was or where I saw it, but uh, it was with uh, uh, a billionaire over in India, and he runs the only space agency company that's privately held that can actually get to the moon and uh, they can probably put people on the moon really soon. And sure, the United States can have all the regulation they want around sites and different things on the moon, but it doesn't really matter because nobody owns the moon. So uh, if you can get your country to authorize you to launch an aircraft, to launch a spacecraft and get it to the moon, well, there's nothing saying you can't go there and set up a picnic table and have lunch on the Apollo moon landing site, the first place where humans ever touched a non-celestial body, uh, a non-Earth body. So uh, that's pretty bad news. I mean, I'm an advocate for uh, really kind of tearing stuff down sometimes and saving it, but I think, I think the future of humanity lies in space, and that's one site that I would argue over and over and over again that we need to preserve just to remember how we got there, you know, how that first happened and and what that really looked like so i don't really think we need to save a bunch of old hotels in downtown reno to be honest but i think we should save the moon landing site <laughs> and interesting thing uh the moon landing site is now 50 years old you're probably seeing a lot of stuff about the neil armstrong uh and apollo 11 uh moon landing and because it's now 50 years old this year and uh this month actually and with that being said, uh, the 50-year rule for nominating stuff to the National Register of Historic Places obviously applies um, if it's just 50 years old and it's significant. But the weird thing is it doesn't actually apply because the moon is not on this planet. And not only that, it's not in the United States. So none of the regulations that we have here actually apply to that. Also, uh, 
if it were owned by the United States, if let's say some regulation came down and they said uh, any country or you know company or something like that that, that touches another uh, astronomical body, they own that little piece of land and maybe a buffer around it, then that is you know sovereign U.S. soil or something like that. It still wouldn't matter. It, it just doesn't apply. You know, it doesn't apply to uh, what we have here. So um, our, our rules here and. It's just it's an interesting it's an interesting conundrum. Um, but if I, I think what I was trying to say is if it does end up becoming some sort of U.S. soil and our laws do apply to it, then it would have been significant the minute it happened, regardless, um, because that's the the loophole around the National Register fifty year rule is if it meets one of the four major criteria, um, like an, a historic uh, important event to mankind or our society, then it becomes instantly eligible. For example, the nine eleven site I bring up all the time. That became instantly eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places because anyone who was alive when that happened and was old enough to process it remembers it, and it was a dramatic impact on policy and created new departments within the government, and uh, you know it had a massive impact on our society. Therefore, it's determined to be culturally significant. So, okay, well, I've got uh, one more article here that I uh, that I really want to bring up. It's just a quick one, but I think I'm going to hold off on that because I was on vacation last week and I intended to run uh, an interview we did on the Archaeology Podcast Network with Michelle Coons of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science uh, because it was a great interview, but apparently the internet there wasn't very good and I thought that it had uploaded and it didn't. So they ran something else and I'm not sure what they ran, um, but I am going to play that a portion of that right now. If you want to hear the rest of it, it's going to release in about a month and a half or so on the Archaeology Podcast Network over at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 71. And I'll mention that again after I play this clip. So this is going to pretty much head right into it, and uh, I'll come back in about 15 minutes after that is done. If you want to ask me a question about anything, 775 um, – wow, I always forget the phone number. How about that? 775-515-4141. And uh, we can talk about that on the air or off the air. doesn't matter. So here's that clip right now from the future episode 71 of the Archaeology Show with Michelle Coons. And you'll also hear my co-host, April Camp Whitaker. So we go straight into the first segment of this. All right. So as this gets ready to play, um, we're going to... Hear her talk about um, some programs and something called Magic Mountain, um, which is actually uh, weirdly owned by Disney. I may have screwed this up, too. I've never actually brought a clip in here before, and there was nobody in here when I got here, so we might not be listening to this clip, which is fine. I can still talk about it, uh, which I think I'm going to do because this doesn't look like it's going to play at all. So how about that? All right. Well, um, since it's buffering. Okay. So anyway, if that just picks up, then I'll let it pick up. If it doesn't, then that's fine. But Michelle uh, was a really cool person to talk to. She's the curator of archaeology um, at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And she is, uh, again, just a really cool person and just kind of fell into that job one day and loves it and was going to be there for a long time. So um, it's... Uh, it's a really cool place. If you're in Denver or ever near the Denver area, go check it out. She said they have over like 400 employees. I mean, it's a massive organization. But one of the things they had was this site called Magic Mountain. And the reason it's called that is because it was funded by Disney, <laughs> weirdly. And uh, so the, the people that came in and funded it, and, and there's a whole backstory to that that she didn't really get into. Um, but it basically became called the Magic Mountain site. But one thing that's really neat that I think we need here in this part of Nevada for locals is the public archaeology aspect of it. So they bring people out there to um, to excavate based on a plan. They have a multi-year plan for excavation. Um, they bring people out to excavate and to uh, you know just explore the area and and do more research. And along the way, they teach them archaeology. You don't have to be qualified uh, as an archaeologist. Obviously, uh, you can just be any human being, and it doesn't cost any money. And they bring people out there to uh, talk to learn about the site to learn everything that's happening. And uh, it's just a really cool, um, really cool thing. And uh, I, I wish we had 
like I said, more of that over here uh, in the in well Nevada. Uh, I don't know what sites those would be, and I don't know where you would see those, but um, I think that would be uh, pretty awesome. So. Anyway, uh, she talks about different geophysical methods that she uses, remote sensing tools. So we were just talking about space archaeology. That's basically remote sensing. Um, and then, of course, traditional archaeological techniques like excavation and pedestrian survey. She also specializes in ceramic analysis, radiocarbon dating. And, of course, radiocarbon dating is what we use to date uh, organic things that are less than 50,000 years old. Uh, man, I heard just again on, uh, what was it? A TV show or a movie or something the other day, somebody saying about radiocarbon dating a fossil. And I'm like, you can't radiocarbon date fossils because they're rocks. <laughs> okay. So don't think that you can radiocarbon date a fossil because it's a rock. You can only carbon date stuff and it's called radiocarbon dating because it's radioactive carbon, but you can only carbon date stuff that is still organic in some measurable amount, right? It still has some organic material. It still has that carbon in it. And uh, that is that is really important to note. Um, it's, uh, it's something that uh, people don't think about a lot. Um, it's something that people just don't realize. But carbon, radiocarbon, radioactive carbon, has a half-life of just over 5,000 years, which means that Whatever quantity you started with, let's say you have 100 units, whatever that means, after just over 5,000 years, about 5,200 years, you'll have 50 left. And then after another 5,000 years, you'll have 25 left. And it's not like it's disappearing. It's converting into other stuff that's not important right now. Uh, and then after another 5,000 years, you'll have 12 and a half left. So if we know the conditions with which the carbon were laid down and we use other physical methods to determine that, to determine those baselines over the last 50,000 years from ice core samples to, uh, to other things, then we can, we can get a rough idea of what the, the carbon, the radiocarbon level would have been in an organic being, um, like a animal or a, you know, human or something like that. And then we can say, okay, so we know basically how much they started with. Well, how much do we have now? And it's basically just measuring that and then doing the math backwards, right? I mean, that's really all it is. Uh, it sounds, sounds fancy to say radiocarbon dating, but really you're just counting <laughs> and, then and then doing math. And, uh, and it's not even complicated math. It's, it's really kind of basic math. And some of the things you'll hear when you look at radiocarbon dates, if you happen to see a, a report or anything, is you'll see um, calibrated dates and then you'll see uncalibrated dates. And uncalibrated basically just means, hey, we have this much carbon. And if you just double it back this number of years, then that's where that goes to. It's X number of years ago. But if you say um, calibrated, that means it was calibrated against one of those other methods in that area, like um, tree ring dating or dendrochronology or um, ice core dating or something like that. Uh, we know that it was uh, we know that it was calibrated to that, and then it's probably going to have an actual year on it too. You know, we could say it's it dates to you know, 500 BC or something like that, um, or BCE as we say. So anyway, that's, uh, radiocarbon dating. So check out that episode. I'm not going to play the clip because for some reason it didn't work. I'll have to figure that out and maybe I'll play it again some other time, maybe next week. Uh, so I'll figure that one out, but basically the magic mountain community archeology span project, um, it's worth listening to just to hear about that. And then, you know, again, try to figure out if we can set something like that up here. I know that the Nevada state museum has certain programs and other things here in this area, there's different programs like that, but I don't know if anything that was consistent enough like that, that people could count on year after year. Now they're not doing it anymore. She said, um, it's kind of over for a little while. They're, they're a little bit played out on it, but they're doing other stuff. And it's, um, Again, just a really cool, uh, really cool thing that they did. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. One of these last articles is uh, about King Tut. Everybody knows King Tut, the famous Egyptian boy king. Uh, this article is from CNN uh, just a day or two ago by a reporter named Jack Guy. And uh, again, it was on July 18th, and it's called King Tut's Coffin to be Restored for the First Time Since It Was Discovered. So King Tut was discovered in uh, 1922, 
and uh, it was um, initially moved, and then it's now stored in this tomb in Luxor. Actually, they just moved it not too long ago, and uh, I didn't actually know it was even still there. Uh, apparently, they've been preserving it, you know, in place like that for a really long time. And the tomb around it has been, uh, it just finished a nine-year conservation project, returning it, as they said, to its former glory, which is interesting because I know when it was unsealed, it was one of the few tombs they'd ever found that had presumably never been broken into before. But can you really tell what it looked like? I mean, you can brighten everything up and and make it look nice, but I I don't know if we can 100% say what its former glory was, uh, as I do air quotes that you can't see. But uh, I don't know if they can tell what that was, but... I suppose we can get close and we can make it look nice, but I, I, I'd like to see their interpretation of what that former glory looks like based on the uh, photographs of when it was located and uh, and just see, you know, see how that looks. Because if that conservation project took place over the last nine years, well, for almost 100 years, it's been sitting there. Well, I guess 90 years it's been sitting there. And how many changes happened then? I mean, they protect it pretty well, but can they protect it that well? And, and what did they base the conservation project on? The images from 1920 that were in black and white or more recent images? I mean, do we have a catalog of what's changed? Can we even tell that? Uh, nothing is really straightforward when it comes to archaeology and history. you got to look at all these factors. So, All right. Uh, it says the restoration will take about eight months. Um, coffins suffered a lot of damage, including cracks in the golden layers of plaster and weaknesses in all the golden layers. And... Uh, that's another interesting thing that the article doesn't really mention was, uh, is this, are, are, is this damage recent? Is it from, you know, tourists coming in, you know, scientists touching it, uh, people looking at it. I mean, not just looking at it damages it, but the open air atmosphere, things like that. Or is that over the last, uh, couple thousand years that it's been sitting down there, right? Is that damage just from time or is that damage in the last hundred years? That's something that I would be interested in knowing because, uh, honestly, uh, it's really difficult to, um, you know, to fix all that. <laughs> it really is. So uh, when we find stuff these days, we're a little bit more conscious about how we treat it. For example, when we find stuff that's underwater uh, and it's in the, the, the underwater environment like shipwrecks and things like that, uh, the underwater environment is actually preserving it because it's keeping it wet, keeping it from drying out and falling apart. And we have to be really careful. We can't just pull stuff out of the ground. Um, we can't just pull stuff out of the water, I should say. Um, we have to be real careful. And, and it's not much different than an Egyptian tomb. I mean, those things are sealed up under the desert. They're in some air that is very stagnant. They're in some, and it's not necessarily air from, you know, 2,000 years ago. But it's a different environment than than what we live in now. There's a lot of chemicals in the air. There's a lot of things in the air that we're just used to, but that are very damaging to things uh, from the past, obviously, because uh, it would have been damaging if these things were in the past now. But uh, either way, we have to be careful. So, for example, when we pull, say, wooden artifacts out of the water, like shipwrecks and other you know things from ships, even like metal artifacts that are rusty, uh, we have to immediately immerse those again or put them in solutions or coat them in something that that slow down or stop that decay process altogether. Um, that's, that's what we have to do. So it's, uh, it's not an easy task. Um, not an easy thing, uh, to do that. But again, that's what we have to do to slow down that process. And it's the kind of thing you have to think about when you're training as an archeologist, you don't just learn about the history and the past, uh, of different regions, because for one thing, you can't learn about all different regions, but you can't learn about just these few things. You also have to learn about general preservation techniques and uh, and basic, um, you know, archaeological method and theory they call it. Uh, because if you know the method and theory, if you know how to find stuff and how to preserve stuff and how to uh, how to best describe those things, well, then you can just about work almost anywhere and then learn the little idiosyncrasies of that area once you get there. So um, that's. That's that. And, and, you know, another thing I'd want to worry about, too, or at least discuss with somebody uh, that's an Egyptologist or somebody that over in Egypt is, you know, we have to be real careful in this country, and rightly so, about displaying uh, Native American remains, okay? People don't seem to care as much about historic remains, <laughs> but Native American remains for sure. We have to be careful not only where those are displayed. Um, I heard something uh, relatively recently 
about um, – actually on a podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network about a woman who went to grad school and there was a recent thing right before she got there where there was a poster with uh, Native American remains on it uh, from an archaeological excavation posted outside the office. It wasn't intentionally outside this person's office, but somebody just didn't think when they put it up. But out the, outside the office of a Native American researcher that worked there. I don't know if they were a professor or whatever, but I mean, they get very, again, rightly so, they get very emotional about these things. And it's a very spiritual thing for them to see uh, ancestral remains, even if it's not necessarily their ancestors. It's a thing that dramatically affects them. And it has to be considered. It has to be thought of. Well, what I'm, what I'm talking about here is where else in the world is that true? It might be true in Australia, where the Aboriginal population is still around, uh, you know, and, and still there, and, and still a, a very much a factor of everyday life. But is it true in Egypt, where Egyptians probably see themselves as direct descendants of the Egyptian dynasties that these were from? Uh, do they care? Are they proud of seeing that stuff on display? Do they want people to see it? Does anybody have a, a spiritual or philosophical objection to these things being on display? One would think no, because the massive, um, like for example, the Grand Egyptian Museum, where the um, tomb of King, well, the body, uh, the I guess the casket of King Tut is being restored, is this massive thing. You know, it's got it's only about two kilometers away from the uh, uh, from the actual pyramids at Giza, and you can look out over this glass and just see them out there. I mean, it's supposed to be this amazing, amazing thing, and it's real interesting to me how other cultures. Uh, I guess, treat all this stuff and how other cultures, um, I guess, see and, and understand how their ancestors lived and then how they interpret that themselves. It's, uh, it's a really weird thing. Uh, I'm interested to know what other people think about that. You know, what do your, um, how do you feel about your ancestors? You know, what about your grandparents? What if your grandparents were famous and uh, their bodies are on display? <laughs> for some weird reason we don't really do that much anymore but what if that were the case you know what if that were the thing is that something that would bother you um what if in this day and age your recent relative that's deceased decide to have themselves plasticized like that bodies exhibit that travels around and you know in a position like you know hey mowing the lawn but here's all my muscles and bones uh would that be something that disturbs you does it disturb you because it's a weird skeleton it's not something we're used to seeing or does it disturb you because it's somebody you knew uh, in real life or somebody you were related to? Does it disturb you from that aspect? Uh, I'm very curious to hear people's opinions on that. Probably running out of time for this episode, but you know, feel free to drop me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We'll have the conversation there or over on Twitter or on our Facebook page, um, which I didn't mention. Facebook.com forward slash arcpodnet. Instagram forward slash arcpodnet. Everything forward slash arcpodnet. A-R-C-H-P-O. D-N-E-T. Okay, so in the last couple minutes here, uh, I want to bring up another old discovery, and it's about a 9,000-year-old mask. And I love the headline uh, from uh, National Geographic, which is surprising a little bit from National Geographic, but says, stuns archaeologists and raises eyebrows. I love it when scientists are shocked or archaeologists are stunned or, uh, you know, everything's all weird. But I, you know, I'm not going to get into the article too much because we don't have time, but this mask is freaky looking. It's, uh, it's kind of oval shaped. It's got weird little oval shaped eyes and kind of a slit of a mouth with, um, I guess what looks like teeth kind of etched into the outside of it. And, uh, they said it's a, a rare discovery. Um, and, and it was, uh, uh, announced by the, um, Israel Antiquities Authority, um, it was recovered several months ago by their theft prevention unit, um, according to a press release that they let out. Uh, and then I guess Natural Geographic got a hold of it. But it's a, it's a pretty crazy thing. Um, they said it's a newly discovered mask and it shares many characteristics of others that have been found to date. Um, and it says uh, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Um, involved with the, this person was involved with the discovery and the identification. He says, this person says, you see it, you want to cry from happiness. I'm not really sure about that. Um, but it does have some, some interesting appeal. It's just a really neat specimen. And if it were, uh, if it really is 9,000 years old, that's the amazing part to me. Um, but people are wondering about the exact purpose of these masks, uh, that are found. Uh, and again, somewhere around 9,000 years ago, a lot of them are found and in the Israel area there, or what became Israel, um, said they may be associated with a form of ancestor worship, 
uh, or something like that. And of course, funerary rituals or other rituals are, um, <laughs> this person says, just elaborate party gear. I'm glad they said that because I've mentioned on this show before, anytime archaeologists don't know what's happening, we always say ritual. Um, now, a lot of times it is ritual. Let's be honest. People make special things because of religion, right? They make special things that are kind of one-offs or uh, special things that are, um, uh, you know, uh, just special to them uh, because of religion. So uh, that's so. Rich saying ritual is not really out of the realm of possibility, <laughs> although I do make fun of it. So anyway, um, it's a pretty cool article. Uh, some really neat stuff in there. You can see some other masks that they have. They like these full skull type masks um, that are just really crazy. Um, and then, uh, they talk a lot about where it was found and, and how it was found. So it's a really well written article. Again, if you want to hear anything about these or see some of these things again, um, go to the archeology span podcast network because this will eventually make it up there as a recording and a podcast. And you can listen to it to your heart's content and see the show notes. Um, that's the one thing about radio is I can't leave show notes, um, because this is live and there's no show page. <laughs> so, uh, we run into that issue all the time, but if you want to stay abreast of archeology span news and you happen to have an iPhone, one of the ways you can do that. That's really easy is the new, uh, new ish last year news app from Apple. Now they have news plus now, which you don't really need. Uh, I haven't seen any news plus articles about archeology, span but I just have a search related to the topic of archeology. Uh, and I have archeology span searched in a, a lot of other ways too, but um, just this one about archaeology, and it's uh, it's a really great way to keep up on some some news that's happening and and some things uh, in the archaeology world, and it's it's all over the place again, from Egypt to Pompeii to you know the United States and everything in between. So uh, definitely check that out if you want to keep up on your archaeology news. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap up this show for the day. Um, Hopefully, we'll be back next week, and Brian can join us again. Uh, We'll have some more things to talk about. I've also got a couple of new volunteer producers coming online for the Archaeology Podcast Network, and they'll they'll be bringing in some some great guests back to the show uh, because finding guests and booking guests is uh, very time-consuming, and um, I'm happy to have someone else do it, basically. (laughs) So, again, Archaeology Podcast Network. Dot com or arcpodnet.com for all your archaeology uh, news and information and public archaeology. And again, uh, coming out, I think, on Monday, if you're listening to this live on uh, July 19th, 2019. Oh, I didn't realize that. 19 July 19th. Nice. So if you're listening to this live, then we have a new podcast. And it's not a new show. They've done over 60 episodes. Uh, but it's a new podcast to the Archaeology Podcast Network called The Dirt Podcast. And that is coming out, uh, debuting on the Archaeology Podcast Network for the first time on Monday. So definitely head over and check that out. Again, you've been listening to KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada. And online, hopefully, at knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. And I have listen to this in other areas where you can't pick up the signal, the 95.1 FM signal, and just run it on my phone and Bluetooth it through my stereo, just like you're listening to the radio. So if you ever want to hear the show and you don't happen to be around and you have the data to support it, (laughs) then go ahead and uh, listen to it through your car stereo while you're driving uh, or just wait for the podcast to come out. So, all right, that's all I've got today, everybody. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening and thanks a lot for hopefully learning something and telling somebody about it. And we'll see you next week from KNVC 95, KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media, and Carson City, Nevada. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. 
in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.